Did your parents ever tell you you could be anything you want as long as you're a doctor? We all recognize the power of the white jacket, respected professionals with the power to heal. The medical community recognizes the need for diversity and doctors today come from different ethnicities, races, communities, and yet disability is often excluded. It's time this often overlooked aspect of medicine is examined. I can't think of a better interviewee than Dr. Sherry Blowett to do just that. All Inclusive, a podcast on inclusion, innovation, and social justice with Jay Ruderman. Welcome to All Inclusive. I'm your host, Jay Ruderman. Dr. Blowett, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jay. Dr. Blowett is a person with a physical disability, and she's a wheelchair user since a young age. She's board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and sports medicine. She is an assistant professor of PMNR at Harvard Medical School and an attending physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital. Dr. Blowett, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. So your career has been very impressive, but I'd like to start from the beginning. You, as a young girl in Iowa, had a dream of becoming a doctor. Was disability a concern in this process? You know, it's a great question. Really, my interest in medicine evolved fairly organically. You know, as you noted, I did acquire a disability at a very young age. And as I was moving through junior high and into high school, I was always fairly intrigued by healthcare settings. Uh, my mother worked in healthcare, so I would often go visit her at work, for example. And I thought the hospital was a really exciting environment. And then because of my own experiences as a young person with a disability, I also, you know, naturally interacted with healthcare environments more than many of my peers. And I think those two things really came together to um, help to develop my interest in medicine. When I think about my early interests and how that then played into my plans moving into undergrad and furthering my education. You know, I look back and and I honestly think that I had almost a naivete regarding the fact that disability may have been a barrier. And when I think about that, I, I, I think it's quite interesting. I do think that it's somewhat of a product of being from that ADA generation, where as I was moving through my education, I simply, I did feel the liberty to kind of dream big regarding what I wanted to be and where I wanted my career to go. And um, also because I was involved in sport, I think that um, that also had a role in boosting my confidence and enabling me to see that I would be probably capable of engaging in a career in healthcare or being a physician. And so for all of those reasons, I really just plowed ahead and, you know, when you're interested in medicine, there are so many boxes that you have to check with regards to coursework and getting good grades and taking the MCAT. And that was honestly really my focus. As I progressed through, I, I, I'm sure that there were moments in which my disability probably was perceived negatively and could have created barriers. But uh, through that phase, really kept my head down and um, tried to focus on the task at hand. So let's go back to when you were a young girl with a disability and first being treated by doctors mm -hmm. and nurses. What was your experience? Was there any patronizing involved, overdue sympathy? Or how, what was your experience like with, with the medical personnel where you, where you were? 
you know, I, I definitely recall, particularly like in adolescence and then moving into young adulthood, medical encounters wherein, you know, you may be coming in with a, a simple issue. So for, say, for example, an upper respiratory tract infection or a cold, and sometimes there would be an overemphasis on uh, your background disability or the provider uh, potentially feeling as though that they needed to treat you differently because there was this uh, background of a fairly significant disability that was somewhat distracting to the issue at hand. You know, all of those things um, I certainly remember taking into account and taking note of things that I would have wanted to see them be different and would want to do it differently in my own career. And what about today? Now that you're an established physician working in, in hospitals, how do your colleagues react to you? Are you one of equals or are there issues that you deal with as a person with a disability who's also a respected physician? A lot of it does depend on environment. So, for example, um, you know, I have the fortune of having my primary appointment be in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard, which is based at Spalding. Spalding is a very, you know, enlightened place and most of the professionals there and most of my colleagues there have a fairly deep experience in interacting with the disability community. So, you know, things are very fluid and I certainly feel that in that environment that it's very easy to assimilate and simply, you know, be a natural colleague with people and to think about our our tasks at hand as professionals. Um, There are other environments in which, although, you know, certainly you don't feel as though there's an overt sense of discrimination there's still a sense of being somewhat different and needing that inherent uh, feeling as though one has to sort of, I guess you'd say, overperform or overcompensate to, you know, fit in and just be part of the crowd. People in the sports medicine community don't interact as regularly with people from the disability community. So in those environments, I often find that it takes a little while. There's often a a period of just a little bit of natural hesitancy where people may not know exactly, you know, how to react to me being there and sometimes may overcompensate or (laughs) worry about it even a little bit too much. It just takes a little bit more work to then build those personal relationships where people feel comfortable. And what about your patients? Can you talk a little bit about your interactions with patients, especially ones who are new that you haven't interacted with before? What's mm-hmm. the reaction to mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. So I find that patients who are younger, anyone really, I would say in their 60s or younger, it's very clear that most of those individuals, most of those patients have been in an environment before, interacted with people with disabilities or have seen people with disabilities be in professional roles. And so it's not surprising for their doctor to open the door and wheel into the room. And there's really no reaction at all. It's just a typical encounter. Conversely, there are certainly other times where where that door opens and there's a moment in which you see a look of surprise in the patient's eye or a look of confusion. Uh, In some circumstances, fairly rare, but it does happen, you know, the patient will say something and and say, oh, you know, I, I hadn't expected my doctor to use a wheelchair or as they would say often be in a wheelchair or something like that. And or, you know, I've had just a few encounters where patients may say something that's a bit more negative, like use language that isn't as, I guess you could say, what we would consider to be culturally appropriate or what I would prefer. And I find that most of those interactions are typically with older patients. And I think that stems from just the rapid evolution 
evolution of disability culture Mm -hmm. and awareness in our communities and the presence of people in professional roles. And I think a lot of those older patients, if they do react or do say something that's in any way skeptical or negative, it typically comes from just a lack of awareness regarding or lack of ever having uh, been around people with disabilities in professional roles. Um, So most of the time, I, I certainly don't take it personally or think that it's anything malicious. I think usually it's just ignorance, honestly. Mm -hmm. So a recent report found that in medicine, especially many students hide their disability out of a real fear of judgment, bias, and a skewed perception of their ability. Why do you feel that they have a fear to disclose their disabilities? You know, we think of our prototypical doctor as a, you know, typically strong white male (laughs) Mm -hmm. who is able to, you know, have an incredible amount of physical prowess. And so I think that there's still a perception out there that demonstrating anything that could be perceived as weakness will be detrimental to one's career in medicine or their uh, ability to move through medical school and then advance into residency and beyond. There's certainly been a lot of work towards thinking about issues of just diversity and inclusion in medicine in general, beginning at the trainee level. I think there has come a a broader recognition of disability as an element of that diversity, but a large number of initiatives have focused on issues related to gender or race, ethnicity, and have really left out disability to a large extent. So we're sort of catching up in a way. Well, it seems like disability, even though uh, people with disabilities are the largest minority in our country, in our world population, they're often the last to be considered part Mm -hmm. of a diverse group. And it's only in recent years that there's been a shift in attitudes um, of groups like the American Association of Medical Colleges to be more inclusive toward medical students and trainees with disabilities. What do you think is driving this evolution and what do you feel are the next steps? I think that a lot of that shift has come out of the fact that I go back again to the ADA generation and this cadre of students that are coming through high school and then undergraduate education with a vision or a goal to have a career in medicine and those numbers increasing and there being honestly a pressure from the community of students who are saying, look, you know, I've seen examples, I've seen role models, I've seen people who have done this, or even if I haven't, I think I can do it and I'm coming and I'm applying and there needs to be a good reason why I wouldn't be admitted. And if I am admitted, then I need to be accommodated. And so a lot of it, I do think has been occurring in parallel with a just a cultural shift that we see more broadly. And then also an increasing number of students who are coming to the table and wanting to apply. So do you see yourself as part of a growing movement of doctors with disabilities who are starting to change that narrative by saying it's a disservice to both the medical profession and patients to exclude doctors with disabilities in in the medical field? Are you part of that? Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of maybe a way that you've challenged the community? Mm Mm-hmm. Until now, it's it's only been more recently that we've started to talk about that and actually raise that as a problem um, and that it's really sort of come out of the closet. And that's, I think, been, been the results of what were initially informal coalitions of advocates that have now started to formalize a bit and bring together this conversation and be allies to one another, be mentors to younger people entering the profession and really to create more of a formal network. One group that's doing a lot on this topic is uh, the University of Michigan. 
um, and they have several um, advocates, both on the clinical side as well as in research, that have been doing quite a lot of work to both do studies that show, okay, what is the current uh, proportion of medical students with disabilities that are currently matriculated in our schools um, to, to provide a little bit of uh, data to back up what the community is saying, and then also thinking about how to elevate that conversation with use of social media and so on. And so it is starting to coalesce, but it's really only been quite recent. Right. Well, that's awesome. And thank you for your leadership on that. You're listening to All Inclusive with Jay Ruderman. You can learn more, view the show notes and transcripts at rudermanfoundation.org slash allinclusive. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you are listening. You are an athlete. You're a former Paralympic athlete in the sport of wheelchair racing, and you competed for the United States team in three Paralympic Games, bringing home a total of seven Paralympic medals, which is very impressive. Uh, So congratulations. How did you start your career in athletics? (laughs) My uh, evolution of an athlete uh, occurred over many years. When I was a young person uh, growing up in the Midwest, and my first exposure to adaptive sport was through the sport of wheelchair basketball. I I initially didn't necessarily latch onto it or love it or think that it was something that I would stay involved in. So my first hook was actually when I did discover some youth adaptive sports programs that were taking place in Des Moines, Iowa, which was quite a drive from our family farm. And the the way I discovered it was actually that our high school track coach saw a wheelchair racing exhibition event um, at the Iowa State High School track meet. He uh, came back to school and told me that he had seen this and that he had been exposed to it. And he encouraged me to try out for the track team the following year. And um, initially, I completely blew him off and <laughs> said, well, that's great, coach, but you know, I don't play sports. I'm not really interested. Uh, but he was thankfully very persistent and being from a small community, of course, everyone knows everybody. And he was able to get other people in the community to also try to uh, cajole me into going out for the team. So the following year, I joined our high school's track and field team. Of course, I was the only student with a disability. And uh, I went to practice and got a uniform. And of course, this coach worked very hard to make it an inclusive experience um, and would give me drills and training programs. Uh, But the reality was that I was the only athlete competing in most of those events. So I was about, again, about ready to throw in the towel. But at the end of that season, we went to the state track meet and I uh, ran into and encountered uh, three or four other adolescent girls who are also competing in the sport of wheelchair racing and training with a wheelchair racing team in Des Moines. And I was immediately so intrigued by wanting to get to know them and to be a part of their community and to have peers and other teenage girls my age who also had disabilities, that that was actually the initial hook to stay involved. And with that, I I started to get to know other athletes, get to know coaches with expertise in adaptive sport. And then I started to get really hooked and began to see myself as a true athlete with potential to compete and to have talent in the sport. So as I continued through high school, you know, I very slowly but surely acquired skill. I ultimately got a racing wheelchair, which was appropriate and custom made for me. And with all of those experiences and with just the day-to-day training, eventually started to get good at the sport and then ultimately evolved into competing competing at the Paralympic level. Well, first of all, congratulations. I'm, I'm in awe of your success. And it just goes to show you the story of, of your coach, mm-hmm. leadership, and someone that's willing to engage in real inclusion and, and support an athlete with disabilities. 
Do you remember the name of your coach? Of course, yeah. His name is Jay Roseboom, and he's still coaching both track and field and football. Yeah, well, congratulations <laughs> to him because he was ahead of his time. He was. And um, another thing that I'm completely in awe as a Bostonian is that you were a two-time winner of both the Boston and New York City Marathon. So congratulations on that. And I'll also point out that although you're no longer competing, you're joining the U.S. Paralympic team as their doctor. Can you tell me about this role? Just because you retire from the sport doesn't mean that you want to detach yourself from adaptive sports generally or the Paralympic movement. So immediately I started to look for ways to stay involved and to to, um, use my other professional roles to continue to contribute to the movement. So I had the good fortune um, in 2010 of uh, being able to join the medical committee for the International Paralympic Committee. That's been extremely fulfilling um, because we are the group that really works with the International Paralympic Committee to think about overall health and well-being of the athletes, um, everything from providing sports medicine services at the Paralympic Games to thinking more broadly about things like policies that we know will um, help to protect athlete health year-round. And that's been really an incredible journey and really has honestly given back to me as well and helped me launch my my career in medicine um, and being able to, you know, speak um, as someone with expertise in uh, what we would call Paralympic sports medicine, which is now its own niche Mm -hmm. and developing field. A way to combat stigma is through education. One of the things that the Ruderman Family Foundation has done in partnership with Massachusetts General Hospital is to train medical professionals, doctors, nurses, orderlies, so forth, how to treat a person with a disability when they present themselves. Um, We first started focusing on autism, but now it's expanded into other disabilities. Um, Can you talk a little bit about a person with a disability comes into um, the hospital, you see them as a patient, um, the entire staff within the hospital, do they know how to, um, not to single out your institution, but do people in the medical establishment understand how to treat a person with a disability? I think generally that many people in medicine, and if you think about it at all levels, from you know people at the front desk and reception in a clinic to nursing staff to physicians, still have a bit of, I guess you could say, a hesitancy or even a fear around treating patients with disabilities. And I think that we see that at a few different levels. I think that first off, particularly in our Boston hospitals, to be frank, there are a lot of access challenges, whether one has a physical disability or a sensory disability or an intellectual disability. Our hospitals frequently have fairly old infrastructure. They weren't designed um, to be universal or to be welcoming towards people with disabilities. And so that is an issue. And it's one that does create challenges um, and even challenges from the standpoint of knowing that a patient with a disability, you know, it may take a little of extra effort and that then can lead to more stigma, right? So access and um, overall accessibility is one issue. And the other primary issue is just an overall lack of awareness around uh, disability or people with disabilities as part of a minority community and the whole issue of disability culture and um, the identity around disability culture. And I do think a lot of that goes back to our training, wherein people spend probably 90% of their time thinking about what medical diagnoses cause disability and how to fix those things, rather than thinking about disability as 
part of the human experience. And so, again, when we think about the small amount of curriculum that's applied towards things like how to best work with underrepresented minorities um, and issues related to cultural competency, it's a, it's a very tiny portion of medical training. And then disability within that is either non-existent or an even smaller portion. It's just hasn't been addressed systematically to a large degree. There's still a lot more work to do in that regard. I had a minor injury in sports. I wandered into an emergency room with a cane and was put into a wheelchair. And my experience was people stopped looking at me Mm -hmm. and started looking at the wheelchair Mm -hmm. or the cane. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've experienced that, how that makes you feel. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's still, you know, look, we come from a history of centuries of a medical model wherein people are seen from the standpoint of, you know, what is your diagnosis? What is your illness or your injury? And how do we treat that? And if we can't treat that, or if we're identifying that someone is going to move forward in life as someone with a disability, then there's still an underlying current that we have failed or that we have not returned someone to their ultimate state of health perfection, I guess you could say. And so that undercurrent, although even if even if it's not talked about, it's still where we come from. And it's a deeply entrenched part of the medical culture that we have to work very hard to move beyond. And, um, you know, we're certainly we're certainly doing better now than 10 years ago, but there's a lot more work to be done. And that's why, you know, I emphasize the importance of things like curriculum in medical schools, because we need to start um, influencing people's biases at a very early point in their careers to then have a cadre and a generation of healthcare providers who see disability differently. Let me finally ask you, what more do you think could be done by the medical community, our listeners, by us, um, so that the, the inclusion of doctors with disabilities becomes more regularized in our society? Mm-hmm. I think there are several things that are that are really important next steps. I think the first is continuing to raise awareness regarding, as we discussed earlier, disability as an element of diversity. You know, there's so much talk about diversity inclusion in medicine in general right now. You know, even making the, the simple change to ensure that we always talk about disability as part of those initiatives would actually make a huge impact because a lot of resources are going into that topic right now. Things like scholarships and fellowships towards diverse applicants, for example. And, you know, just really making sure that when we talk about diversity, we always remember disability and really bring that conversation out of the closet and feel comfortable talking about it. That in and of itself will make a tremendous difference. And it will also elevate the conversation to continue to push us to bring disability out of the medical model. And the other thing that I think is a little bit more technical, but equally important is reducing our barriers to entry. Because right now what happens is that so many talented young students at the undergraduate level look at the process of applying to medical school and interviewing and ultimately matriculating into medical school and see so many levels of barriers that they simply decide not to try. And there can be simple things that would be helpful with that. Um, You know, things like looking at technical standards and admissions policies, uh, things like ensuring that when we talk about that process that we make it very clear that applicants with disabilities are welcome. And I think that would also make a tremendous difference. Well, I think that we all have to do a better job 
um, of educating more professionals in the field and persistently acknowledge and accommodate medical professionals with disabilities. Uh, I want to thank you, Dr. Blauett, for your important insights and for many groundbreaking things that you've done in your life and, and will continue to do. So thank you for being our guest today. I think the best way to end this important conversation is with the great phrase that's trending is that disabilities does not mean inability. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Jay. All Inclusive is a production of the Ruderman Family Foundation. Our key mission is the full inclusion of people with disabilities in all aspects of society. You can find All Inclusive on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. To view the show notes, transcripts, or to learn more, go to rudermanfoundation.org slash all-inclusive. Have an idea for a podcast? Be sure to tweet at Jay Ruderman.